Good morning. Let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a tremendous privilege it has been to worship you together. Some of us, for many years now, what a privilege it has been for us to walk through numerous books of the Bible together, and now a privilege to begin a new one together. We ask that as we begin to study the book of Leviticus, that you would Grant us, Father, to do so with great joy and expectation, and that you would do, as we have just sung, that you would magnify Jesus Christ. You would grant us to see how you have desired to know us and how you have desired that we would know you and how you have made provision for that by giving your Son to us. We pray for your help this morning as we get a picture of this great book. We look forward to this, Father. And we, we pray all these things with great confidence because of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, as you're finding your place there, if you would please stand with me. We're going to read just the first verse, just Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. You may be seated. I'm actually going to explain this verse today. Well, we met Friday night to read this whole book together, and uh, typically that event is, is one that is anticipated by folks, and people are very excited to, to hear what the next book is that we're going to be studying together, and, and it, it has happened in the past that people are very excited, and you kind of get some of this, and oh, yay, and... There was not much of that Friday night. <laughs> not much of that. There are 66 books of the Bible, and we've studied 20 so far. That means there were 45 others that we could have done. So why Leviticus? Some might wonder. If you've read Leviticus casually, it may seem like a fair question. You know, the first seven chapters lay out in tedious detail five sacrifices and how to perform them. There are two chapters, two long chapters, that deal with nothing but how to identify and cleanse leprous diseases. The easiest part of the book to read is also the most terrifying and perhaps confusing. And on top of all of that, this book is part of the Old Covenant, which strictly speaking does not pertain to us as New Covenant believers. So... Again, why Leviticus? Well, we could appeal to our kind of blanket answer from 2 Timothy 3.16, which reads, 
all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And for, for me, for, for most of us probably, that answer is good enough. I've actually got another answer, a twofold answer that pertains explicitly and, and specifically to Leviticus. And that is that Leviticus turns our eyes to the central reality of human existence and it answers the central question of human history. It turns our eyes to the central reality of human existence. And that central reality of human existence is that man was created for fellowship with God. It's what we were designed for. We can only flourish in relationship with God. That's a message that's needful today. You know, if you, if you look around you, anywhere in society, even in your own home, and possibly even in pockets of the church, you will see people desperately trying to flourish outside of fellowship with God. Every societal ill, every depression, every crime, every flitting from one hobby to another, every move from one romantic relationship to the next, every search for identity in self or work or things is an expression or result of humans seeking meaning, fulfillment, flourishing outside of fellowship with God. So Leviticus turns our eyes to this central reality Flourishing, meaning, significance, fulfillment cannot be found outside of a relationship with God. We were created for fellowship with Him. Leviticus also answers the central question of human history. That central question is this, how can I, a sinner, approach and abide with a holy God? Yes, I was designed for fellowship with God, I get that. But my sin separates me from Him. So, how can I get back to the mountain of God and live as I was designed in fellowship with Him? Leviticus depicts the path to approach God and the blessedness of abiding with Him. I was was at a conference not quite a year ago listening to an Old Testament scholar talk about this book. And he said, If I was the devil, Leviticus is the book that I would want people going nowhere near. And so today, I want to give you a better grasp of why that would be. And we will look closely at the first verse, but I actually want to give you an overview of the book of Leviticus and give you four handles by which to mentally grasp or hold on to the entire book. The first of those handles is that Leviticus demonstrates God's gracious desire to commune with man. God's gracious desire to commune with man. Leviticus demonstrates this for us. And we can pick this up even from the very first verse. If you look there again, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Some of our English translations don't show this. Some of them do, but some don't. The ESV doesn't. The first word of Leviticus is actually the word and, or some translations will will render it then, 
which indicates that this is actually a continuation of the narrative from the end of Exodus. In fact, Moses has written the entire Pentateuch from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's all a single narrative. And at the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle, which is God's dwelling place among His people, the tabernacle has just been erected. And so then we come to Leviticus 1.1, and the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses. You might want to write this down. I find this helpful. The Hebrew name for this book, Leviticus, is actually... And he called. This, this, these first words from the beginning of the book. And he called. And that's a great way to conceive of this book. The Lord has initiated a conversation with his people. And that, that name is, is emblematic of all God's interactions with the people of Israel. It's emblematic of all God's dealings with man, period. God initiated a relationship with man in the garden when He created him in His own image. God initiated a relationship with Abram when He approached him to create a covenant with him. God pursued the people of Israel when He came to them in Egypt to rescue them from the burdens of slavery. God initiated a covenant with Israel as a people when He made a covenant with them in Exodus 19, a covenant that provided for the erection of this tabernacle. That's His idea. It's not their idea. This was God's idea. And every time we see God in a relationship with someone, He has initiated it. From Genesis 1-1 to Leviticus 1-1, God desires to commune with man. Look again at 1-1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That God has called the tabernacle the tent of Meeting indicates God's desire to have fellowship with man. The tabernacle is not intended to be a place where God dwells hermetically sealed off from contact with His people. And we may get that impression given its construction and the rituals associated with it, but exactly the opposite is the case. The construction of the tabernacle and its rituals are designed to facilitate fellowship with God. It's a place to meet with God. It's a tent of meeting. And not only this first verse, but everything in the book of Leviticus presupposes God's desire to have fellowship with man. The sacrifices, which all have a different purpose, by the way, and we'll we'll see this. The sacrifices indicate that, that God desires to be with man. The priesthood, the cleanliness codes, the, the laws dis, uh, distinguishing the holy from the un, unholy. Every item in the tent of meeting. The prescribed feasts, the sabbatical years, and the jubilee. Even his immediate execution of Nadab and Abihu, they are all indications of God's desire to be with man. The tabernacle itself is intended to be a picture of Eden. In Genesis 1 and 2, Eden is where man had fellowship with God. And Moses, who wrote Genesis 1 and 2, he loaded Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, with language connecting it to the creation or the building of the tabernacle. And the parallels between the language, there there are too many of those parallels to mention. I'll give you just a few. And I would encourage you to read about the creation of 
of, of the world in Genesis 1 and 2 and read about the, the building of the tabernacle in those middle, tap, middle chapters of, of Exodus, chapters 25 and following, and you'll see some of these parallels. But let me give you some of that language. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read language like this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The heavens and the earth were completed. God finished the work that he had been doing. And God blessed and sanctified it. And we come over to Exodus and we find Moses using this, the same language to talk about the, the, the building of the tabernacle. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. Thus was completed all the work. When Moses had finished the work, Moses blessed them and it was sanctified. We could even look at the, the verbs used to describe Adam's work of tending the garden. Those verbs are the same verbs used of the priestly work in the service of the tabernacle. When God created the world, he was, he was creating a place for man made in his image to live in fellowship with him. This God who is the source of life. And the tabernacle then is like a return to Eden, a place where the Israelites can once again have fellowship with God. So the existence of the tabernacle speaks to God's desire to have fellowship with His people. Broadly, if we were to look at the, the, the structure of the book of Leviticus, we would find that the first half of the book is how to approach this God. The second half is about how to live with this God. How to enjoy Him. Because that's what He wants. He wants man to have fellowship with Him. If you're a believer, God has called you to a relationship with Him already. And Leviticus reminds you of that. If you have never followed Christ, Leviticus reveals a God who is a God who desires for humans to know Him, and to have a relationship with Him, and He is speaking to you. He desires to have a relationship. A second mental handle by which to grab this book is this. Leviticus exposes the barrier that sin poses to this fellowship. It exposes the barrier that sin poses to that fellowship. So look again at that first verse. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, this is so easy to skim right over, but it's significant especially if we're reading carefully the preceding narrative in Exodus. See, back in Exodus, there was a prior tent that was referred to as the tent of meeting, but it was outside the camp. You can read about this in Exodus 33. If you're taking notes, you might write that down, and you can read all about this in Exodus 33. When Moses wanted to talk to God, he would go to that tent outside the camp, and everyone else, all the people, they would stay inside the camp, and they would stay at the door of their own tents. But Moses would go outside the, the camp. He would go to that tent. He would go inside the tent. And God would meet with Moses in that tent and He would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But that tent was not the tabernacle which is built in later chapters in Exodus. The tabernacle was built inside the camp, which is the whole point. God wants to be in the midst of His people. 
So God provides for the building of this tabernacle. The tabernacle is finally built in Exodus 40, the last chapter. Now look with me. If, if your Bible is like mine, all you have to do is just shift your gaze over, to, over one page. Exodus 40, verse 34. Exodus 40, verse 34. Tabernacle is now standing. It's in the midst of God's people. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And that, that cloud represents God's presence. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses can't go in now. And, and, and it says because the cloud had settled on the tabernacle. This may confuse us because the cloud settled on that tent that was outside the camp earlier and Moses was able to go in and out of that tent all the time. The problem is that now the tent is in the midst of the people. And, and Moses' inability to enter now that the tent is in the midst of the people, it pictures sin. Sin, sin is a problem here. Sin poses a barrier to man's fellowship with God. You know, sin is what separated man from God in, in the Garden of Eden. Dealing with that is not going to be as simple as, as building a tent for God in the desert. I, I said a moment ago that the existence of the tabernacle is an indication of God's desire to fellowship with man. Elements of the tabernacle are also an indication of sin's barrier to that fellowship. The altar that exists there, it also exists because of the barrier of sin. The altar of incense, which we will, we, we will discover as we, as we look at Exodus, it exists because of the barrier of sin. The veil that separates the, the holy place from the holy of holies, it exists because of the barrier of sin. The story of Nadab and Abihu also demonstrates the barrier of sin. In chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they try to approach God in a way that he has not prescribed. And the whole scene shows with shocking clarity. God is holy. Man is sinful. And to approach him without proper covering is deadly. You, you see, it, 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 it isn't just against the rules for, for sinful man to enter the presence of a holy God it leads to immediate death. Sinful man literally cannot survive in the presence of this holy God. And, and all of us are conceived in sin. All of us, additionally, by virtue of our volitional rebellion against God, are unworthy to enter His presence and we deserve the wrath of God. And so Leviticus reveals this tension here. This tension that exists even in modern day human beings. God wants to commune with man as illustrated by the building of this tent, but sin, sin separates man from God as illustrated by God speaking to Moses from the tent instead of in the tent. And so the question becomes, how is this tent going to become an actual tent of meeting? How can sinful people enter God's presence? Well, that leads us to our third mental handle by which we're going to hold on to Leviticus, which is that Leviticus pictures 
God's provision for sinners to approach and live with Him. Leviticus pictures God's provision for sinners to approach and live with Him. So, now I'd like to walk briefly through the flow of the book with that idea in mind. Leviticus picturing God's provision for man to approach and live with Him. 1-1 reads again, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and what follows is a prescription for the problem of separation. The book begins with five chapters describing sacrifices. Those early chapters, which can seem to be the hardest to plow through as we're doing our Bible reading plans, they are going to be deliciously rich as we're studying this book together. The sacrifices are both provisions for approaching God and provisions for abiding with God. So we have those five chapters. Then the next two chapters instruct the priests on how to perform those sacrifices. Then we move on to chapters 8 and 9 and we have the consecration of the priests for that duty. So what we have then in in chapters 1 through 9 is is sacrifices given to us for approaching and abiding with God and the institution of a priesthood for that service. At the end of chapter 9, we have those things put into application such that Aaron and the high priests offer those sacrifices and Moses and Aaron actually enter the tent of meeting. So we had this problem at the end of Exodus. Moses could not go into the tent of meeting by Leviticus chapter 9. Aaron and Moses, they go inside. And so now the the tabernacle is actually a tent of meeting. It's unbelievable. The God of all the universe, from whom sin separates man, man is in His presence. But it's it's very similar to to that very short time between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, from Leviticus 9 to Leviticus 10. It's just so short. You want to savor it. But in Genesis 10, we have this debacle of Nadab and Abihu, They approach God in a way that is not prescribed in those first nine chapters. And they are immediately killed by fire that comes out from Yahweh. Now this creates a crisis, a very serious crisis. Because they have entered the tent of meeting. And there are now dead bodies in the tent of meeting. Which Leviticus itself explains to us later is a very serious problem. Dead bodies are unclean, and so now the tabernacle itself is defiled. What is going to happen? Is this whole thing destroyed now? Dead bodies here. So, what we get in the next few chapters are are some, some laws, first of all, to prevent this kind of thing from ever happening again. Cleanliness laws that prevent God's people from defiling the tabernacle ever again. And then we get to the high point of the book in chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement, which provides for the cleansing of the people and gloriously, thankfully, the cleansing of the tabernacle so that once again, the tabernacle is a tent of meeting. So the crisis has been taken care of. 
The rest of the book is about life in fellowship with God. And God begins to teach the people, because you are Yahweh's people, then you should live like people of Yahweh and not like the people of the pagan culture. That is expressed in the laws of chapters 17 through 20. And because you have fellowship with Yahweh, here is what that fellowship should look like and how it can be enjoyed. That's expressed by the feasts of the sabbaticals and the, 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 expressed in the feasts, the sabbaticals, the jubilees and the vows of the final five chapters. Through the sacrifices and the priesthood, God has made provision for the people to approach Him and abide in fellowship with Him. Now, I've, I mentioned that the Pentateuch reads as a single narrative, Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's all one narrative. And so look again at the first verse of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So Moses is outside the tent at that point, couldn't go in. Now flip over to the first verse of the book of Numbers. That's just the next book in the Pentateuch. First verse of the book of Numbers. Numbers 1.1 reads, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Did you get that? At the beginning of Leviticus, we have this problem. God is speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. He can't go in. But now at the beginning of Numbers, He speaks to him in the tent of meeting. Because of the provision made and instituted in Leviticus, God is living in the midst of the people and they are able to have fellowship with Him. Now, again, what does all this have to do with us? Because we aren't members of the Old Covenant. And these mechanisms for approaching and abiding the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the feasts, we don't do these things. They aren't available to us. So, so what's the point? Well, that third handle that we're holding on to, remember how that, that was worded, Leviticus pictures God's provision for sinners to approach and live with Him. It pictures God's provision. The actual provision is the subject of our fourth handle, and that handle is this. Leviticus points typologically to God's ultimate presence and provision in Christ. Leviticus points typologically to God's ultimate presence and provision in Christ. Anybody use the word typologically in casual conversation this week? Are we throwing that around? Yes, I figured Pastor John had. <laughs> I'll explain what that means here in just a moment. Listen, Le- Le- Leviticus, with its, with its depiction of approaching and abiding with God, provided much of the conceptual framework much of the, the, the mental vocabulary by which the New Testament authors understood the work of Christ and its ultimate aim. So the, the Leviticus is like the thinking building blocks by which the, the apostles and Christ even understood what Jesus was doing and its ultimate end. And so we find Jesus 
and the apostles using Levitical language to describe Jesus and His work, to describe the church, and to describe our eternal future. So they believed that God in the Pentateuch, in those first five, ber- five books, was picturing for us, was kind of forecasting for us, the true way to fellowship with Himself that would eventually come through Jesus Christ. The storyline, the storyline of the Pentateuch is just a small picture of the whole storyline of salvation history. The, the, the storyline of the, the Pentateuch is structured as, as something that we, we've talked about this before. So if, if you're starting to go to sleep a little bit, slap yourself around a little bit because I'm about to use a, a, a word that tends to put people to sleep. You, oh yeah, go ahead. It's a chiasm. The, the Pentateuch is, is a chiasm, which just means that the first part of the story mirrors the last part of the story. First part of the story mirrors the last part of the story. The second part of the story mirrors the second to last part of the story. And so on until you get to the high point or the climax in the middle. You with me? And so we, let's think through the, the Pentateuch here. We've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So what do we have in that storyline? Genesis shows God's people leaving the promised land. What do we have in Deuteronomy? We've got the people preparing to re-enter the promised land. What do we have in Exodus? We have God rescuing His people from Pharaoh and providing for His grumbling people in the wilderness. In Numbers, we have God rescuing His people from Balak and providing for His grumbling people in the wilderness. Right in the middle we have Leviticus, which is the turning point or climax. And so over the course of the Pentateuch, the storyline is God's people moving away from life with God in Eden, moving away from life with God in the land into slavery. And then there's this turning point taking place in Leviticus where God provides atonement for their sin, begins to dwell in their midst, and leads them into life in the land with Him. Alright? Now that story is what we could think of as a type, which is where we get the word typology or typological. It's a type, it's like a picture that forecasts for us the entire storyline of salvation history. Salvation history, as shown in the Bible, is also structured as a chiasm. In the Garden of Eden, man was cast out of God's presence. Fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible. What do those last two chapters of Revelation depict for us? They depict us back in God's presence. A new heaven and new earth where we we live with God forever. A better Eden. From the beginning, man was moving away from life with God into death. What's the turning point in the middle? What provides a way for man to come out of death into life such that he can now enter the eternal promised land of the new heaven and the earth? What is that turning point? It's the incarnation. The, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Pentateuch is a picture of, the salva- of all salvation history. The book of Leviticus points typologically, that is through these types, through these pictures, to God's ultimate provision and presence in Jesus Christ. 
And the New Testament authors, they actually teach us by example to read the Old Testament this way, to see Old Testament persons, events, and institutions as corresponding anticipations of new covenant realities that come as a result of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you some of these types or pictures from Leviticus that point to Jesus Christ and point toward the reality that we have in Him, okay? Just a few of these things. First of all, there is the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself. John 1.14 reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word dwelt in, in dwelt among us is more literally tabernacled among us. The tabernacle represented not only God's presence among His people, but it's also the mechanism by which sinful men could enter the presence of a holy God. And so what John is, is telling us by using that verb is he's, he's saying to us the incarnation is, is the presence of God, but Jesus is also the mechanism by which sinful men enter the presence of a holy God. We're going to find as we, as we look at the book of Leviticus that not only the, the tabernacle itself, but also the furnishings of the tabernacle are types of Christ. I won't go into all of those. So we've got the tabernacle, first of all. Then there are the sacrifices. We're going to look at five plus, actually, sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus. And what we find is that blood has to be shed for, to atone for sin. Blood has to be shed. But there are hints in the book of Leviticus that the blood of animals just doesn't cut it. It's just not going to do it. And I'm not going to give those hints away right now. I'd encourage you to read Leviticus with a critical eye, looking for those things. See if you can find those hints. But Leviticus is actually telling us a better sacrifice is needed. And the New Testament reveals that that better sacrifice comes through the sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Peter, twice in the first chapter of his first epistle, uses tabernacle language and applies it to Jesus, speaking of our being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. He speaks of our being ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. All of that is pulled from the book of Leviticus. The sacrifices in Leviticus are types pointing to the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So we've got the tabernacle, the sacrifices, then there is the priesthood itself. It is obviously is obvious in Leviticus, painfully obvious, that the priests are themselves sinners. Two of them get fried in the tabernacle because of their sinfulness. Great pains are taken in the giving of the law to make sure that these guys don't die when they enter the tabernacle, all of which indicates they are not inherently worthy to enter God's presence. A better priest is needed. A sinless one who doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. And the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is that better high priest. The tabernacle, sacrifices, priests, all of these types of Christ. Now, there are also other themes. There are themes or, or things that, that Leviticus teaches us 
that are carried into the New Testament and applied to the church, such as God consecrating for himself a holy priesthood and a holy people. Did you know that you are a priest? We tend to think Catholic when we hear, we hear priest, a priest. And, and it's kind of elite people, and there's just a few of them in any, in any um, given parish. But no, the New Testament teaches that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. That comes from Leviticus because Peter is taking Levitical language and he's applying it to the church. Peter wrote this to the Gentile church in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He continues on just a few verses later in verse 9. This is 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The priests of the Old Testament, listen, they are not parallel just to pastors in the New Testament church, but they are parallel to the entire New Testament church. God's God's desire to consecrate for Himself a holy people in in Leviticus, that is fulfilled in Christ's work in the church. How is it that people are made holy in Leviticus? They're made holy through the sacrifices there and their, their proximity to the God's presence? Well, in in Ephesians 5.5, we read this language. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All of that language taken from Leviticus and applied to the New Testament church showing Christ as the sacrifice and Christ as the priest, cleansing us from ungodliness that we might be a holy people. And to that end, there is this theme of consecrated living before God. Not just an imputed righteousness, not just that we wear the righteousness of Christ, but that we live righteous lives. And this is, this is the theme in Leviticus. God wants His people to live as if they belong to Him. Well, that is brought over into the New Testament as well. The New Testament calls us to strive for holiness using language from Leviticus. This is 2 Timothy 2.20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. All of that is pictures and language pulled from Leviticus and applied to the New Testament church. In Leviticus, it is God's own presence that sanctifies His people. God's own presence sanctifies His people. We find this theme in the New Testament as well. Paul uses tabernacle language to indicate that fellowship with Christ is the mechanism for change. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're, we're, we're just moving through the book of Leviticus. We're seeing how all of this is actually used by the New Testament authors 
applied to us in Christ. We can move then to the, the, the Sabbaths and the Jubilees. And we, we, can, we can think of the, the, even the curses and, and the blessings. Paul teaches in Galatians there are, that we're going to find in Leviticus, there are curses for breaking this covenant, curses for disobeying God. You know what Paul teaches about, about the curses of breaking the law? Christ became a curse for us. So for all those who have repented and trusted in Christ, there is no curse left for us. But 1 Peter chapter 1, all the blessings in the heavenly places are waiting for us. They are being held for us as an imperishable and undefiled inheritance in heaven. All of that, all of that is language from Leviticus being brought into the New Testament and applied to us because of the work of Christ. For all of these reasons, Lord willing, Leviticus is going to be one of the most Christ-exalting and practical books that we have ever studied. It is going to repeatedly remind us that God wants to have a relationship with us. Raise your hand if, 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 you, could, if you could stand to hear that on a weekly basis. God wants me in His presence. Raise your hand if, if you could stand to hear, I need to be in God's presence. I could use that. We are going to repeatedly be reminded that sin separates us from a holy God, but that God has made a sufficient provision for us. And that provision comes to us in Jesus Christ. I have a suspicion that there are those of us in this room who could stand to hear on a weekly basis, Christ is a sufficient provision for me that I might enjoy God on a weekly basis. Leviticus is going to repeatedly remind us that we exist to flourish in His presence now and eternally. Leviticus is going to call us to leave aside silly, tangential, temporal searches for significance, meaning, and fulfillment, and rather to rest in Christ grow in godliness, and bask in fellowship with our Holy Father as we shine His light to the nations. As I've studied for this series, I have been overwhelmed by how much God loves us, and I have been moved to see how trivial are the things that we fill our lives with in lieu of approaching and abiding with Him. And my prayer is that as we walk through Leviticus, you will be overwhelmed by how much God loves you, how trivial are the things that we fill our lives with in lieu of approaching and abiding in Him, and that we will, instead of those things, approach and abide with Him. May the Lord bless us through the study of this book. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your, for your wisdom, for your love, for your sovereignty. The fact that all of these things point so perfectly to the provision that you've made in Christ is indicative that you are a sovereign God. You've moved all these things to happen. 
You're not just lucky. You're a sovereign God. We thank You that You've loved us so much that You have woven history. You've woven all of history to point to the sufficiency of Christ in saving men. And now You've led us to this moment to see these things. We praise You for that. We ask for Your help as we study this book that You would grant us to savor it, to see it rightly, to understand it, to grasp the reality and the wonder The blessing of the fact that you want to have communion with us, we pray that you would use that knowledge to fill us with a desire to want the same thing, that we would by your Spirit avail ourselves of this precious means of fellowship, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we would find ourselves hourly, daily, weekly approaching you and and enjoying fellowship with you to the extent that our homes are filled with conversations about You, our interactions with the lost are filled with conversations about You, and that we anticipate nothing more than the return of Christ that we could be with You face to face forevermore. Father, for those among us who have never repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, we ask, Lord, that truths that we have talked about this morning would would weigh heavily on their consciences. That they would feel even now in this moment that barrier that sin creates between them. The dire straits that they are in. That their separation from you in this life and the misery that it causes is a mere glimpse of the misery that they will find on the other side of death. Pray, Father, that you would Grant them a vision of the hell that awaits them. The hell that we all deserve. The hell that Christ died to save sinners from. Please move them today to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. His all-sufficient sacrifice. His resurrection from the dead. Grant them life in Him today. So that we all together in the coming weeks can revel in the reality that we have been ushered into the Holy of Holies to enjoy you forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.